Hi, I'm Sam Graham. This is Small Talk. Today we're interviewing Josh Maudlin. This interview is really, really great to hear. Um, he wasn't going to be part of this. Um, he was really busy, but he um, did me a solid and came on and made time in his really busy schedule. Uh, we only got to do it for an hour. I think this would have been a great conversation to have more time and to really expand on some of the topics he brought up. I think he brought up a lot of good life experience. Um, we talked a lot about the intersectional identities of dwarfism and how that impacts us. And he really had a whole person-centered approach to talking about the dwarfism community. And I really appreciated that. Um, I've gotten to know him while working on the SWAT team which is the Social Workers and Talking, which is a part of the crisis team at uh, Little People of America conferences. He volunteers his time there and is a really big part of that community. He is overall just a really wonderful person and I'm very glad to have him on this. Thank you. Let's try that. Can you hear me? Okay, great. I'm your busy day. Oh my gosh. It's such an honor to get you no here. Problem. So thank you for being here. Um we're just gonna start chatting. Um we're it's recording right now, but I'm gonna cut all of this out. Um do you wanna share a little okay. bit about what your role is currently and what in the mental health field? Not with an LPA, just your Not with an LPA. So I am a, a social worker. I got my master's degree uh, in social work, uh, specializing in healthcare and I would say emergency, critical, end of life, um, acute care as opposed to sort of long-term uh, healthcare. Uh, currently, I'm a hospice consultant as a, I'm a stay-at-home father, but I work uh, in hospice uh, as a social worker, as part of an interdisciplinary team, working with uh, doctors and uh, nurses to help patients and their families um, navigate the journey of, of hospice, end of life care, symptom management process, what they'll be sort of expecting. They, the uh, grieving process. Um, and a lot of what I do is translate sort of what doctors uh, and nurses are explaining to families uh, into sort of everyday terms and also work and then simultaneously working with those families and the patients depending on the stage of where the patient is at on um, preparing for losing their loved one. Um, what their life will look like without their loved one uh, in, in physically with them, um, working with patients to tie up any loose ends, whether that's writing letters um, to, to children, uh, to future generations in their family, and making sure that patients really focus primarily on patients have, you know, what we would in hospice call a good death. And a good death is dying with, without regrets, uh, dying without pain uh, in, in a com comfortable manner so that there's no suffering uh, for both the patient and the family. Cool. Uh, so it sounds like you work like with the older population a lot more than like younger. You would think so. Um, I don't work, uh, the way our healthcare system is set up, uh, hospice is more or less either for pediatric, so 18 and under, uh, or adults. And the truth is, um, as people are living longer, the people that we do see on hospice are sometimes younger um, because those are people that are facing terminal illnesses. We do have patients who are on end-of-life care for Alzheimer's and stage heart failure. Those families tend to need less social work intervention, um, not to, to discredit or, you know, 
take away value of those that population and i we do work with them but it's across the gamut of you know people in their 30s uh, i would say the majority of the population that i've worked with are sort of two groups um the patients who have a terminal diagnosis of a cancer or um, an end-stage organ failure, whatever that organ might be. And those are typically patients anywhere from 30, 35 until around age 50, uh, maybe 60. And then we do have patients who are in, you know, their 80s and 90s, and that work looks does look different. Do you enjoy the work? Do you enjoy social work as a whole or doing what you do? I do. Um, the reason I chose social work sort of as my journey of mental health, as mental health profession, as opposed to, I don't know, psychiatry or, or psychology, uh, is the way I think of it is Psychiatry really focuses on the organic mental health issues, so things that can be addressed using medication. Um, to be truthful, that also requires a medical degree and more schooling. Um, a psychologist, you know, is really the way our society and our training and our healthcare system is set up. Psychologists are really focusing on the individual and how they can make changes to their own lives in addition to you know doing testing and diagnoses for um, uh, psychological disorders and social work sort of takes all of that into a a bag or a bubble and looks really looks at the person within their environment so not just figuring out and this is true across social work and all sort of social work um, specialties uh, would be what other factors are contributing to the patient, the client um, distress? Uh, is the home state? What's going on at home? And not just focusing on sort of the, which I, I believe you mean, I believe that we need psychologists and we need psychiatrists and they're very much needed professions. And I don't mean to discredit those professions, but for me, uh, you know, and perhaps it's because of my upbringing and uh, life events that affected me. I think often we go into a profession based on uh, a life event or life events that um, have occurred. Um, I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession. I knew I wanted to work in the medical field. And I chose social work because they're the ones who spend time with the patients. They're the ones who spend time with the families. Um, you know, you see a couple of patients a day, as opposed to having a caseload in the hospital, at least of, you know, 20, 30 patients in an ideal world, uh, and can really focus on what else can help the patient. What, you know, what other changes can other people within the environment need to be made to ease whatever the tension, the crisis, the, whatever the situation is to allow the patient or client to uh, achieve homeostasis and, and really reach, you know, an equilibrium of, of feeling um, balanced and healthy um, often that is in conjunction with uh, psychology and uh, psychiatry. I think in the United States, at least, the healthcare system is shifting uh, where psychologists are providing less and less sort of long-term clinical therapeutic uh, um, services and are providing more, you know, acute helping people who suffer from depression, anxiety, and other uh, psychological or psychiatric disorders in conjunction with a psychiatrist. The truth is, is we, a, a lot of what we do overlap, yeah, you know, and so we, you, you work together to figure it out. But, but I, my training, my educational training and my professional training 
is not to, you know, when, when a patient comes to me with a problem, my first reaction is not, oh, this problem, this person has, you know, depression or this person has anxiety. It's what is causing these things other than, you know, the, the organic, anatomical, uh, chemical uh, sort of issues uh, that might go on within the brain. And you took what you learned in your, your occupation and you brought it to LPA and you're on the SWAT team. When did you start working with the SWAT team? I was afraid you were going to ask me that question. Um, I started, I can tell you, the, the first year that, that we had SWAT, which I believe was in, I want to say Seattle, but that might not be true. I know I started the first year. Um, so Michelle Krauss, who is was a member of the national board and has been on various committees, uh, started the SWAT team, Social Workers and Talking. Um, ironically, it doesn't only have social workers as part of the team. Um, the reason that I wanted to join SWAT is I believe that when you go to LPA, there is a, an unwritten expectation that because you are a little person or a family member of a person with a skeletal dysplasia, you're going to fit in. And when you think of it, LPA is a cross-cut of America, really a cross-cut of, of the international communities, where the one common thing is, yes, we have a physical difference that are similar to each other. You've been through similar medical experiences. Um, family members can share stories of hope, of grieving. Um, but this sort of unwritten expectation that you must fit in puts a lot of pressure on on the individual and and puts a lot of pressure in different ways depending on sort of the developmental and age of the of the person attending. And helping individuals who are struggling at conference because when you get to a conference or a regional or an, an event and you have this sort of, I'm going to fit in and then you might not because you don't find a group that you have anything else in common with. Um, that can be really, debilitating emotionally, um, which can lead to other coping uh, uh, mechanisms of, you know, indulging in too much drinking of alcohol in order to lower your sort of, um, think of the word, but lower your, um, sort of lower your walls, um, you know, and other sort of behaviors Again, depending on the age group, in, in adolescence, it can be inappropriate behaviors. Um, I think helping those people figure out where in their environment, and in this case, we're talking about just that week of LPA, they do fit in because there is a place and it's hard. And it's the social anxiety of attending a conference doesn't go away after your first conference. I've been going to national conferences uh, since I was 10, so, you know, since 1995, and I still, and even now that I'm on the board, and I'm a district director, and I'm on a member of the SWAT team, those things are sort of covers. They give me, you know, tasks so to do with them at the conference, like and, and do help me, exactly, or, or sitting in the lobby, just sort of people watching. There's this, the other struggle at LPA and I think it it starts let's say in middle school but is really prevalent at the end of high school and the beginning of college is this idea of coming for a week and finding your somebody and that's you know I am lucky that I met my wife at a conference um, that's so much pressure it's right, and and it's not just pressure that you're putting on yourself. It's often pressure from your families, 
and from your home community, your home support of this is great. You're going to, you know, a week where you're going to meet somebody who, who's been through what you've been through. And it, I think it discredits in a lot of ways themselves as average height people being being able to recognize that that you know people of short stature don't necessarily want to date somebody who is of short stature and and that pressure is just it's just unsurmountable in some ways this expectation that you're going to meet somebody let's say fall in love and decide that you're you go from you know the monday of the week to the friday figuring out how now because you live on separate coasts you're going to keep this going. And there are many, many, many successful relationships that have come out of LPA. That doesn't discredit the people who leave LPA, leave that week, well, they weren't good enough feeling like they something. failed. Right, right. They didn't, they didn't accomplish their goals of that week. So as a member of SWAT, I, you know, SWAT is sort of to help people who are in a crisis, but I actually find that those crisis, crises are microcosms of larger issues um, and sort of being, a, being able to help and talk to people, yes, about whatever that crisis is, but, and whether it's they drank too much or they got in a fight or they've had suicidal ideation, um, you know, or, or wanting to harm themselves. Those are almost the symptoms of mm -hmm. that pressure that's that's on you. And if you, you know, if you think about it, I don't know, for people who are maybe listening to this, in the average height world outside of LPA, you know, think of middle school and high school is hard for anybody. And you put that on steroids. And that is what I believe people experience at LPA. And I have felt that for far too long, yeah. it's been overlooked. And I'm, you know, very happy to be a member of the SWAT team um, with you and with other people who are in helping professions that just want to help people feel comfortable about who they are because then they're going to enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. More. And I completely agree that they're, mo they're symptoms of like wider issues. Like, um, I know you had a situation with that involved alcohol while you were at the last conference. And I've talked to a lot of people on the people that I've interviewed for this. And alcohol has come up a lot in our conversations of how much substances are used at conferences and like what that's like for people who either want to be sober or you know, are just not into alcohol or have already social anxiety and now they like fuel it with alcohol. And I think, yeah, it's really interesting that you point that out, that there are symptoms of greater issues in LPA. It's also a symptom of society from, you know, a logistical standpoint as a district director, when an organization signs a contract with a hotel, mm -hmm. there are food and beverage minimums. The easiest way to, uh, significantly contribute to that food and beverage minimum is the sale of alcohol because it's more expensive. So, you know, if you can guarantee a hotel, I don't know, on a smaller scale, a thousand dollars a night in alcohol purchases, they will negotiate with you. So there are two issues. There's the societal issue of the, of the use of alcohol as a almost as an antidepressant, anti-anxiety uh, use. Um, I don't know that I've done enough research. I don't think that alcoholism as a, as a disorder is more prevalent in LPA than in the greater society. Uh, I mean, I don't know that like our genetic makeup leads to that. I would find that really hard to believe. I think it goes back to the, this alcohol lowers your inhibitions and lowers your 
scaredness of being able to put yourself out there just to make friends. Forget the like romance or you know that sort of area. Yeah, yeah. You're editing this, right? Because okay. So I think I don't think alcoholism is more prevalent. I think it is prevalent, and it's probably if you were to do a, a study, it's statistically probably the same within the LPA community versus the the greater average height community. A lot of people, it's not just the social and emotional barriers, but a lot of people turn to alcohol for pain relief, for for physical pain relief, um, and unfortunately. We have been, we have gone through this opiate um, crisis in America, and physicians and pain management clinics are reluctant to prescribe medication to somebody who may actually need it out of this fear that they're going to become addicted. I'm not an expert on drug addiction, I don't claim to be. Um, I think that that has caused a backlash of a problem. So people are now turning to other, um, let's use the word substances, whether it's alcohol, drugs. Um, I, 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 do, I do think, and you can choose whether or not to put this in, but that the legalization of medical marijuana has proven to be less detrimental um, you know, people don't die from overdose of marijuana. You just ride it out. Um, you can die from overdose of opiates and, and alcohol. Um, but I think there's two issues. There are people who, and it, and it connects to this social pressure. I don't want to look disabled. And I'm not speaking about me personally. I'm speaking of, you know, the attendee who's gone through horrific back surgery, leg surgery. Um, you know, joint replacement and have real physical pain. It's not, you know, in their head, it's not made up. It is real physical pain. And you add on that then weight is an issue in people with a short stature, right? So if you have pain, you're unable to exercise. That causes one to gain more weight. The more weight you gain, the less you're able to exercise which causes more pain. And it becomes this cyclical pattern. And because you want to fit in at LPA, you don't want to be in pain. You don't want to be using a scooter if you don't have to, right? You want to just be, let's use the word which I hate using. And I, when I give talks at schools, I say this is a word we shouldn't use. But you want to be normal. And so drinking alcohol, using and I'm not going to use marijuana as an example because I think that's of a sort of a class of its own. But other illegal substances addresses pain and lowers your inhibition. So you can quote temporarily look normal. And and I'll give an example that it is a it's it's more benign. It's not as sort of traumatic as over drinking. I used to, I'm of the Jewish faith, and I wear a yarmulke on my head, um, you know, daily. The only time I don't, in my outside of LPA life, wear a yarmulke is when I'm meeting patients for the first time, because I don't see my role as a spiritual care, uh, a spiritual chaplain. You want to distinguish. Uh, and I okay. don't want, I feel like I'm, I, I distinguish, I'm walking in already looking different as a person with a disability and I want to, you know, give them trust that I'm just as capable as the five foot tall social worker. I don't want another reason for a family or a, a member to, to be uncomfortable or to think I'm not willing to talk about Jesus or which I am, but my training is not in spiritual care. I will wear a yarmulke sort of once I've established a relationship with a family and develop trust. When I would attend LPA, as clockwork, when I would pull up to the hotel, 
my yarmulke came off. And I wouldn't wear it for the week. And the reason, and I'm very conscious of the reason, it was a very, very conscious choice, was 51 weeks out of the year, I stand out for two reasons. I'm Jewish, which is, you know, that's a minority, and I'm a little person. I want this week to stand out for no reason. I want to blend in. And the truth is, is that that's act, that actually caused me more hardship yeah. because I wasn't being myself. Um, you know, I, 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 I was wearing a, a shirt when the way I met my wife, I'll tell this story quickly, is um, she's actually was raised in, in Israel and I had just come back from a year in Israel. And I was wearing a shirt that said Hebrew University Jerusalem. And I was with a friend when we got to the hotel and I realized I was wearing this shirt. I took my yarmulke off. I, I went, I said, we need to go to the hotel. We need to go up to the room so that I can change. And he said, why? And I said, I, I just don't want to be asked questions about the safety of Israel. What was it like? I mean, questions that you're asked in everyday life. Um, you know, what, what, what is it, uh, what was it like? Was it safe? I've heard horrible things, you know, so on and so forth. And I, so I just need to change the shirt. Later that night, a woman, now my wife, yells across the dance floor. There's a dance at LPA and calls my name, a woman who I've never met, never laid eyes on before. And comes up to me and, and says, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, sure. Very uncomfortably. I was nervous. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not sure where this is going. What, why does she want to talk to me? What have I done wrong? Um, and she says, why were you wearing a shirt earlier that says Hebrew University of Jerusalem? And I went immediately on the defense. And said, I studied on it. I was there for a gap year program after high school. I studied. I was at a university. I wasn't in any of the bad areas. It was fully safe. You only hear the bad news here. And I gave like a five minute speech. And she said, Well, I'm a rabbi. And my response, which I know is a juvenile response, and was, Are you Jewish? Which, right, you can't be a rabbi without being Jewish. I was so caught off guard because I had never identified as Jewish at LPA. That, And I knew of Jews, but I never identified that. I, I, I was so caught off guard. And needless to say, we've been married for 15 years. And so... And with two amazing kids. And she actually, I credit a lot, wrote me a letter that she handed me. We didn't start dating. She wrote me a letter at the end of the and, and I think this story speaks to why I feel that SWAT helps individuals. If you find your true self, you will find your community at LPA. Not if you find what you think you're supposed to be. And she wrote me a letter about how she struggled. And she said, don't read this until you get home. It was a very long letter. And one of the sentences was, I have struggled my whole life with my being proud of my Jewish identity and being proud of my being an LP identity. Never should the two meet until I met you that those worlds could finally actually join, be in harmony. And, you know, I was a guy and didn't quite get what she was trying to say. And um, it took a while for me to catch on. And I'm very, now that we've been married for 15 years, I'm proud to admit that, Um, you know, but I think, and, and I have now started wearing a yarmulke, more or less, at LPA. I have noticed that my 10-year-old son takes his off um, and will tell me it's for the same reasons. 
and I'm letting him do it right now to sort of find himself. Um, but we have conversations about it. He also has a lot of friends at LPA, so I'm not right now sort of worried. I think if we can find a way to address mental health, this is not just at LPA, but in society, of what society expects of us is not actually what matters, and what we expect of ourselves is what matters, you will, you, one will move forward in life happier. Because you're never going to meet those expectations. And that is what's on steroids at LPA. I don't have the answer, unfortunately. Right? I don't think any of us really have the answer. Yeah, that's a good point. There's, I've heard it not, I've heard it from other identities, like people who identify as black or people who identify as different races or people who identify as queer. Right. And it's like really hard to be in both intersecting, like be an intersectional identity in LPA. Like it's almost like you have to show up as a dwarf and just a dwarf. Yeah. It's and not just really a dwarf. person approach. It's not very, it's not very good. People are like, it's not, it's not a holistic approach. Or having to put those identities on the back burner to fit in or to be. Yeah. I want to circle back. You mentioned scooters and how like people don't want to be on scooters because they want to appear, again, bad word, but normal, quote unquote. I saw you in Austin using a scooter. Can you tell me about your journey of using a scooter and what's that like? To be fully transparent, LPA really? is the only place that I will use a scooter. Yes. Um, which maybe contradicts what I said before. Um, I will get them at like amusement parks or things like that. You know, my family's begging me to get one because our family quality of life would be greatly enhanced. Our family quality of life right now is affected by my, uh, I don't want to say inability, but my, you know, the pain I have in my back and leg, my, I'm not able to walk as far. My, my wife has achondroplasia. The doctors say she has achondroplasia. Everything shows it, but she can walk like three miles and, you know, if not more, and be okay. She'll be tired, but she's fine. You know, and I can barely walk a mile. I can, but I pay for it. Maybe this contradicts what I said before of the sort of, I don't, I don't know, there's this sort of term of I'm disabled when I say I'm disabled, not when you say I'm disabled. Came down to that the hotels that uh, LPA picked because of the you know exorbitant number of people that attend and large conference centers and it was the conference center hotel in orlando that was a hotel that was attached to a conference center so to get to any of the events any of the events required a walk and it, I did not pre-order a scooter. I still don't pre-order scooters. I always think, all right, this year I can do it. And literally upon arriving at the hotel, which always is hard because there's everybody has sold out or they don't have any more rental, but I find one. This is becoming more vulnerable. I find it that it puts me, and this is because, and I'm conscious of it, the way society sees it more than the way I see it. Um, that when you go into a mobility device, two things. One, I fear that then I'll become dependent on it. I, I have that personality, right? If I have the scooter, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna use it. You know, we say let's buy me one and I'll use it to walk to to get to synagogue or to go on family sort of outings. But I see myself using it sort of all the time. And I have to catch myself even at the hotel, not using it to go from ballroom A to ballroom B. Because it is just much easier. First of all, it speeds you up. 
Um, you can get places faster with our shorter legs. It takes longer. And I find that I'm able to do more throughout the day. So whether that's self needing to sort of admit to myself that maybe it is time to get a student, um, I don't know that I'm fully there yet. My family is definitely there. My friends at LPA are definitely there and want me to, you know, and they give me good reasons. I think that's, it, it's not really the fear of what people outside of LPA will think. For me, it's more the fear of becoming dependent on it. And again, leading to, you know, I'm overweight. I am an overweight person of short stature. And and I think a lot of people in life overlook that, that we have weight, we do have weight problems. And we have, you know, for our, you know, my form of dwarfism is achondroplasia, I have a tight torso. So if that's where, and that's where I gain my weight, I have shorter legs, it's harder on my legs. The fear of becoming dependent on a... No, you're still there. Oh, I lost you. The audio will keep The fear of, of becoming dependent on a device um, is what scared me. What has made it easier for me is, and I've seen it now, sort of, is it, I used to be able to do a lot of walking when my kids were in strollers. Because I could push the stroller and uh, you know lean my weight on it. Um, and now that it's completely inappropriate for them to be in strollers because of their ages, you know they sit with me on the scooter, and I'm very adamant that they don't use it for like short distances, and um, it's hard to explain why they can't, but I can. But you know, using it, I, I feel like I use it at LPA. The way I would use like a golf cart, right? I keep all my stuff on it. I um, can move my kids from one end to the other end uh, quickly. Um, but there's definitely a fear within me, which is a real fear of, of becoming dependent on it. And it comes from the medical professionals who are, you know, try to push you and push you and push you to not use one until you have to. Oh, I hope that answers your question. Is, yeah, I think that we have a, a And I come up with reasons like why I wouldn't want one at home. Like, where am I going to store it? How am I going to get it in and out of the house? Uh, if I store it, because we live in a like a duplex, if I store it in the storeroom underneath, then I have to walk all the way to get it. And I might as well not have one then. Like, so that's sort of, and they're excuses. They're 100% excuses. Um, you know, if my, as my wife says, once I'm ready and have accepted it, I'll make it work of, of where it goes and gets stored. I think, and this is a, a sensitive topic, I think, within LPA, I don't know a different word other than hierarchy, that there is a sense at LPA, you could think of it as like sort of a race, uh, you know, whites feeling in general more superior to minorities, that because people with achondroplasia have far less, in general, far less medical complications than uh, people with other forms of dwarfism, that we're better, that we're healthier, that we don't have as many problems, and therefore we don't want to be like the other you know, people of short stature who, in, you know, have more, you know, in, in you know, to, you know, sort of, I hate to use this word, but more medical complications. And you say to yourself, well, I have achondroplasia, I can do this. Um, and I think the inclusion committee and the SWAT team has done remarkable work because those populations of people with other forms of dwarfism have felt underrepresented and underheard and have felt that second-class sort of citizen, uh, the wrong word, but, you know, uh, a lower than um, people with achondroplasia. 
I think, it, and that has to do with the numbers of people with achondroplasia and research in achondroplasia. Um, but that's me putting my own societal expectations on myself. Like, take it's a microcosm of LPA. LPA is a microcosm of the world. So you know, as much as an average height person doesn't want to consciously think I'm better than or I'm healthier than, the human mind goes there. And I think it's the same thing on a, no pun intended, smaller scale at at LPA. Um, And that's something that I struggle with myself and I'm working on. and with that, the inclusion of people who identify as part of the, you know, LGBTQ plus community um, and people of other minorities. Thank you for discussing that. I'm so transparent. A lot of this is the first time that I've said a lot of this out loud. Um, I mean, you know, outside of talking with family members. Um, or very, very close friends. But being on the board, being on the district, the council of district directors and being a district director and now planning events has really put all of this into the spotlight for me. It's been my wake-up call that as accepting of differences and inclusive that I believe I have always been, might not actually have always been as accepting and inclusive as is the ideal, um, you know, and, and recognizing that I'm a white male and societally that means I, unfortunately, there are opportunities for me that are not available for other people. I don't fear being arrested because of my race. Um, Right, I don't walk through life that way, but being in a leadership role has definitely been a wake-up call. And I think by instituting programs at LPA, at regionals, at national, that can open the eyes and open that wake-up call to the general membership that then can spread it to their own home communities is what we need. And self-recognizing. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And as you know, there's like this new amendment coming out or has been out about accessibility and like what that looks like. And I think for a lot of us ACONs, we think we have an idea of what accessibility looks like because we're thinking about it from our lens. But then we're not actually thinking about it from people who do use scooters or wheelchairs or whatever. And we're like, oh, yeah, this is accessible but the bathroom may not have a wheelchair stall or like, Oh yeah, this is accessible. It doesn't have stairs. So it's like, well, it, it's still like right. has an uneven entrance or something. And like, we're starting to think about all of these situations right. that we have been really privileged to be a part of and these spaces we've been allowed to show up in, but we haven't really, we haven't thought about it. We haven't like, thought now about we're it. Actually, like required to think about it we're thinking about it and we're like oh fuck like correct that's not accessible this event wasn't accessible we've been doing all these exclusionary measures that have ultimately harmed the other identities or the other aspects of the dwarfism community no that's Mm -hmm. an amendment that i struggled with um when it was proposed i struggled with it completely from a logistical standpoint of what does that now mean for people who have been hosting, you know, it's a, it's a nonprofit small organization that completely relies on volunteers and donated spaces. And you have people who have been hosting holiday parties for 25, 30 years, and their house is not fully accessible. That is a logistical problem that we can figure out. And so my struggle with the amendment had nothing to do, and, I, and I'm happy that it passed, um, because I do believe in more inclusion. You know, I 
I think I struggle, and you can decide if you're going to keep this or not, depending on how it makes me look. <laughs> uh, where do, yeah. Where is the line? Right? Are we now... Go, again, you're talking about an organization that does not have, in the grand scheme of organizations, has no, I mean, they have money, but they don't have mm-hmm. a, unlimited resources. So who's paying for these accommodations? Who's, and now are we going to have sign language interpreters? Forget the physical accessibility issue for a second, right? Are we now going to require sign language interpreters at all events? Are we going to require that all programming be printed in Braille? Mm-mm. Right. We haven't even thought about I people who were like, you know, as my son's right, as my son's neurosurgeon says, um, you know, my son is going through some medical issues that he said, you know, everybody, the doctors who specialize in people with dwarfism and all neurosurgeons say, it's just not common in children with achondroplasia. He's entitled to have other health issues. I'm here. I had to ignore a call. Um, he's entitled, I don't really like when they use that word, but he's entitled to have other medical things. He's human, um, you know, that don't, that aren't because he's a, a person of short stature. Yeah, this amendment, and perhaps this is why I struggled with it, only address people with physical disabilities. Right? It was about accessibility, and when we use that word in this amendment, we're talking about physical accessibility, getting the resources, and getting people on to provide accessibility to people who may have dwarfism, but have other, you know, co- comorbidities, you would call it, of regular old world health issues that, have, that cause a, a, a second disability. Um, and I think the struggle for LPA on a national, on a regional, district, and local level is when have we done enough will there ever be a time that we've reached enough or are we always striving to do more and and at what cost who's paying for all of this it's a very complicated question um and I'm very happy that the amendment passed. I don't think it does enough. Yeah. Great baseline. Way more room to improve. I completely agree with that. I was talking to another one of the people I had on the show, and we were discussing the phrase that we grew up hearing, which is, we're just small, that's all. And how much actual harm that does to people who either have neurodiversity or like have other stuff going on or have racial prejudice, like yeah. there's so much more than like just whitewashing it and being like, we're just small, that's fine. Right. And it's like, yeah. no, actually like we're humans that all have, you know, some of us have GI disorders. Or some of us have right. So much spectrum of disorder that has nothing. Yeah, to I, I have, I have dwarfism on my list. I have ADD. I suffer from anxiety and depression. Um, and like achondroplasia is just one of those. Um, mm-hmm. it's interesting you grew up with that. I grew up, which is totally, what, what did it do to me? Because I have caught myself starting to say the following to my children mm-hmm. and need to stop. And that is when I would ask for something, whether it be higher up or whatever, the line was, do you, do you have two working legs? Get a stool, get a ladder, and figure out how to do it. So I grew up with that sort of indoctrination from family members of average height who had good intentions. And heard it from somebody. And heard it from somebody and and really just wanted to teach me, their child, brother, that you can do anything. 
yeah. you just have to figure it out. But the wording was, do your legs work? Can you use your legs? And therefore, you need to figure it out. And I have caught myself in today's day and age saying it to my 10-year-old. Who And there's other ways for me to say that same thing without implying it's because his legs work, right? It's, you just don't have to say that. For him, it would be just get a stool and climb and figure it out. So it's, it's these things that we're indoctrinated with from our previous generation. And every generation is trying to do better. You know, I learned, I learned a saying that when you become a parent, and I think it's true when you just become an adult, you can either uh, reuse what you've learned, recycle, which would be sort of alter it, what you learned from your parents or your family of origin, or get rid of. And it's okay sometimes to not do everything you were raised with. Right, so to, to re reuse, recycle, and to, and to reject. So it was the three R's. So to reuse, recycle, and reject what you've been, what you've been taught. Um, and that it's okay to reject. It is okay to reject. We just have a few minutes left on the floor and want to be conscious of your time. But you are the only person I've talked to that has children or is in the position of being a dad. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that experience is like to have children as a dwarf or like how that affects your thought process? So um, my wife and I were very conscious um, as we were even before. Uh, so my wife is older than I am. Um, but by a number of years, and so she had friends who had children, and we were able to sort of watch parenting. We were able from the beginning, before we even had kids, to sort of think of a few things. Uh, like we made sure that our average height family members never calmed our babies down by standing up. Very often, a baby cries. You stand up, you pick them up, and you rock them. And we knew that we wouldn't be able to do that for lengthy periods of time. So we didn't want our children to get used to that. Um, the minute our kids could start walking, they were not carried for the same reason. We could not carry them distances. And even still to this day, you know, People will be like, oh, you know, your son, my younger son, Eris, he looks so tired. Let me just carry him the next three blocks. And I'm like, no, no. Hold it. He can hold the hand and he can walk, you know. And I think it would be the same thing if a child was in a wheelchair. Um, there are definitely, I live in a cocoon. I'm going to be honest. I live in a cocoon of, uh, of, a, of a neighborhood, perhaps as part of being in, in a faith-based community, um, you know, where we attend a synagogue, our friends that go to the synagogue or temple live near us. So it's all the same. But there are thoughts of, can you do this? Can you be a parent? Also, there's not guilt, but extra thought, knowing that we gave our children dwarfism. And we know some of the roads they're going to have to go down to. And there are people who have said to us, individually, together, why did you choose to have children when you knew this was a possibility? Either A, not to have children, or to adopt children who are already, you know, looking for a home. For all the reasons that we decided, um, we wanted to have our own children. And there's, I'm going to try to, like, not be emotional. Um, there is 
been in that bubble that I live in, you know, in the stores, in the malls, goes back to the I'm disabled when I say I'm disabled, not when you decide I'm disabled. Of, you know, the parents who say, how are they doing this? And, and feel bad for us and express that, you know, feeling bad. Um, some, some of it has come up with the new pharmaceutical developments. I don't know if you're bringing that into this um, mm -hmm. podcast. My wife and I have chosen not to enroll our children in it for varying reasons that are not necessarily necessary to share. And we feel, whether true or not, that when we told our average height friends who have learned about it, that we have chosen not to move forward with it, we feel judged. They might not be judging us, but there's this, it comes up, maybe it has to do with looks we've gotten. Um, you know, they'll ask questions about side effects and what are the success store rates and the efficacy of the drug. But every time we've had a conversation and then we're reflecting in the evening or whatever, we'll say to each other, you know, they totally probably think that if they had a kid with dwarfism, they would use the drug. And are therefore judging us for not using the drug. And we do not, we are of, of the mindset that it's each parent's decision. It is, we're not against it, we're not for it. We chose for our family not to do it. Um, we would not be you know, angry or opposed if our children decided to do it for their children. Um, just the best of it's right, with an older child who's 10, we've been able to discuss it with him. We've been open. Had he said, I want to learn more about it, we would have taken him to doctors, but he said, um, I'm not interested. I, I don't want it, um, which is okay. And that's another area we have to work on in, in LPA is being inclusive of the people who are choosing to try these trials with their children because they're doing it out of a place of love. They want what's best for their kids. I don't think, I, I, I can't imagine that parents are seeing their own children and saying, I want to quote, fix them. They're saying, I want to give them a little extra height. Could it help with something? This is what my research, how I'm interpreting the research, thinks it might be helpful. I really believe that those decisions do come from a place of love, at least in the United States. It's possible in other countries and cultures where, you know, having a disability is really, like, not acceptable, that it's, that it's looked at differently. Um, but to just... I think if we're talking about mental health within LPA and mental health as a whole, it's helping individuals reach in and identify who their true self is and not what their family expects from them and certainly not what society expects from them. And once you find your true self, which I'm still searching for my true self, it's a, it's a, it is a journey, it doesn't end, that you will eventually be able to find what, one, what you need out of the varying, you know, your synagogue or church, LPA, other supporter, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that's sort of, I, you know, that's my feeling. I'm happy to answer more questions if you have going to need to wrap up okay. here because of my day so i'm going to stop recording uh
thank you for joining us on our discussion today. In this episode, we tackled some sensitive subjects, ranging from sexual assault, depression, and substance abuse. We know these can stir up strong feelings and emotions, so please remember to prioritize your own self-care during these conversations. And if you or someone you know is struggling with any of these issues, it might be helpful to reach out to a mental health professional or a support network. We genuinely appreciate the trust you've placed in us by sharing your time and emotions. Thank you for having this conversation with us.